Anthony Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, episode 101. Before we get started, I'd like to thank the following people for following the show on Twitter. Randolph, Logical Atheist, Braver Chick, I like her tagline, What can be asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence, Christopher Hitchens. The Reformed Pubcast, Death by Science, Helen, God, Bossy Submariner, Drew Lowe, and Carter Mobley. I'd also like to give a quick shout out to SeaWeb and Crocoduck for providing me with their usual camaraderie and support. And if you don't already listen to Chris Weber's podcast, SeaWeb Sunday School, be sure to check it out. You can find him on iTunes and at his homepage, SeaWebSundaySchool.com. He recently did a really interesting episode on the evolution of religion. All right, now on with today's episode. Let's do some news. First up, it seems that Fred Phelps, the patriarch and founder of the infamous Westboro Baptist Church, passed away at the ripe old age of 84, I believe. Uh, Just to jog your memory, or in case you don't know, the Westboro Baptist Church is a bigoted Christian fundamentalist group best known for picketing the funerals of dead servicemen and holding up signs that say vile things like, thank God for dead soldiers and God hates fags. I'll read a little bit from the Huff Post article. Fred Phelps dead, Westboro Baptist Church founder dies at 84. Fred Phelps, the founder of the Westboro Baptist Church, has died at the age of 84, according to two of his children. His son, Timothy Phelps, confirmed to Kansas WIBW that Fred Phelps died before midnight on Wednesday. His daughter, Shirley Phelps Roper, also confirmed news of the death to the Topeka Capital Journal. However, at least one family member seemed to dispute the reports of his siblings. As attorney Jonathan Phelps told WIBW, Pastor Phelps is doing just fine. The network notes that this could be a spiritual reference. I can tell you that Fred Phelps is having some health problems. Well, I'd say being dead is a health problem. WBC spokesman Steve Drain told the Lawrence Journal World Sunday, he's an old man and old people get health problems. A spokesperson for the Westboro Baptist Church was not immediately available for further comment Thursday. Nate Phelps, one of Fred Phelps' estranged children, wrote a Facebook post on March 15 saying his father was on the edge of death at Midland Hospice House in Topeka, Kansas. He also revealed Fred Phelps had been excommunicated from the church in August 2013. The Topeka Capital Journal later reported the excommunication occurred after he called for kinder treatment of fellow church members. The Westboro Baptist Church was established in 1955 by Phelps. Over the years, the Topeka-based group became infamous for their vehement anti-gay rhetoric and picketing of funerals. In 2011, NPR reported the church only had about 100 members, almost all of whom were from Phelps's family. So it's strange. It seems like the family is being somewhat unclear or offering contradictory statements regarding whether or not Phelps is even alive or dead. Uh, I I like the part about how he was excommunicated for his stance that church members should be nicer to one another. When I first heard he was excommunicated, I thought maybe he had some kind of late-life epiphany and decided to renounce his bigotry. But no, the church is just so messed up that apparently they don't even like the idea of being nice to one another. Um, 
All right, so on to the next topic. So last Sunday was the premiere of the second episode of the newly resurrected Cosmos series. I actually thought the second episode was awesome. I liked it even better than the premiere. The only kind of weird thing was when Neil deGrasse Tyson took us inside a bear's uterus. Um... It was kind of like, what did you do this weekend? Oh, I shrank down to the molecular level and entered a bear's vagina. It's kind of weird. But it was for a good cause. I'm just joking. He was explaining how a beneficial mutation aided by natural selection led to the polar bear developing its white coat. They also discussed artificial selection's role in the domestication of dogs. As a, a theory goes... There were some wolves that were less afraid of humans than others. They began to scavenge from human settlements, and eventually man started selecting the pups or cubs with the best temperament and breeding them. Successive generations of this supposedly led to the domesticated dog. The whole episode, for the most part, was about biological evolution and the diversity of life on Earth. And speaking of that, notorious young Earth creationist Ken Ham, or a rep from Answers in Genesis, tweeted something along the lines that episode two of Cosmos was nothing more than an infomercial for biological evolution. I paraphrase, I can no longer find the original tweet. But in response, I tweeted, nothing wrong with an infomercial if the product it's promoting is scientific truth. Long live Cosmos. Oh, I'm so witty. <laughs> Still a good point, though, I guess. And another thing, I was really glad that Neil deGrasse Tyson brought up the point that people often misunderstand the scientific use of the word theory. As he pointed out, the theory of evolution isn't a matter of opinion. It's a theory in the same sense that the theory of gravity or the germ theory of disease are theories. They're matters of scientific fact. A scientific theory is an explanation substantiated through repeated confirmation, um, using the scientific method, um, employing observation and experimentation. Okay, so there was another irritating tweet. Prominent self-help guru Deepak Chopra tweeted something like, most skeptics are naive realists, real skeptics understand cosmic consciousness. I replied, skepticism is the antithesis of naivety, which is why we require evidence. In full disclosure, I should admit that when I was in my late teens, I think, I read Deepak Chopra's book, The Seven Spiritual Laws of Success. I can remember telling a bandmate, uh, one of my best friends at the time, oh, I read this book and I, I can feel it, we're going to make it big. Uh... I guess my skeptical sensibilities still hadn't fully developed yet. Suffice to say, we never quote-unquote made it big. We did almost open for the insane clown posse at a club called the Middle East, but the gig got snowed out. Uh, anyway, Deepak Chopra included a link in his tweet. It was to a Wikipedia article on the subject of naive realism. Looks like I'm not the only one who sources Wikipedia. Uh, here's a bit of what that Wikipedia article says on the subject. Naive realism, also known as direct realism or common sense realism, is a philosophy of mind rooted in a theory of perception that claims the senses provide us with direct awareness of the external world. In contrast, some forms of idealism assert that no world exists apart from mind-dependent ideas, and some forms of skepticism say we cannot trust our senses. 
The realist view is that we perceive objects as they really are. They are composed of matter, occupy space, and have properties such as size, shape, texture, smell, taste, and color that are usually perceived correctly. Objects obey the laws of physics and retain all their properties whether or not there is anyone to observe them. Naive realism is known as direct as against indirect or representative realism when its arguments are developed to counter the latter position, also known as epistemological dualism, that our conscious experience is not of the real world, but of an internal representation of the world. Um, so I don't know if naive realism, to put simply, is the mindset that you only believe in what you can see with your own two eyes, a kind of cartoon caricature of what a skeptic is. I would dare to say that the average skeptic or person of reason believes in a lot of things you can't see with the naked eye. Germs, atomic particles, waves and rays that aren't a part of the visible spectrum, such as x-rays or gamma rays. Sensory evidence plays a big part in what we choose to believe or not believe in, but it's not the be-all, end-all. Provide me with satisfactory evidence for what can't be seen or touched by normal means, and I'll believe it. But I'm not going to believe in something fanciful like ghosts or cosmic consciousness without empirical evidence. So take that, Deepak. Uh, okay, on to the next thing. So scientists recently made a major discovery helping to reinforce the idea of the Big Bang. I've spoken before about the accidental discovery by Penzias and Wilson of that primordial hiss left by the Big Bang responsible for the uh, static on your old-timey TV sets. Well, uh, this is something different. This has to do with the um, principle of expansion. I'll read a bit about it from a Yahoo News article. Major Big Bang discovery brings theory of everything a bit closer to reality. And this is by Mike Wall. The discovery that the universe really did expand at many times the speed of light immediately after the Big Bang should bring physicists slightly closer to their ultimate goal, the long-sought theory of everything. On Monday, March 17th, researchers announced that they had detected the signature of gravitational waves in the cosmic microwave background, the ancient light that began pervading the universe 380,000 years after the Big Bang. If it holds up, the landmark find confirms a theory of inflation, which posits that the cosmos exploded from mere quantum fluctuations into something of macroscopic size just a few tiny fractions of a second after its birth. The discovery also gives researchers a new window onto a realm of extreme physics, potentially aiding their daunting quest to devise a theoretical framework that can explain all aspects of the universe. This will give additional motivation and also additional constraints on models of inflation and perhaps a theory of everything, Harvard theorist Avi Loeb, who is not a member of the study team, told Space.com. But of course, it will take time. Okay, and that leads me into our next and final story of the day, and I'll read a little from a Daily Beast article. Evangelicals still don't know what to do with the Big Bang. When a major discovery confirmed the Big Bang this week, some evangelicals ignored it, while others claimed it's already in the Bible. But the theory's Catholic history suggests there's a better way to look at it. The Big Bang theory of the origin of the universe got a big boost this week when scientists reported the discovery of 14 billion-year-old echoes of the universe's first moments, the first proof of an expanding universe and the last piece of Einstein's general theory of relativity. 
Creationists and other conservative religious believers have a curiously ambivalent relationship with the Big Bang. Unlike evolution, which is universally condemned, young Earth creationists mock the Big Bang as a wild guess and an anti-biblical fantasy that only atheists determined to ignore evidence of God's creation could have invented. In contrast, creationists who accept that the Earth is old by making the days of creation in Genesis into long epochs actually claim that the Big Bang is in the Bible. Some of them are rejoicing in the recent discovery. The leading evangelical anti-science organization is Answers in Genesis, AIG, headed by Ken Ham, the guy who recently debated Bill Nye. AIG's dismissive response to the discovery is breathtaking in its hubris and lack of insight into how science works. They call for Christians to reject the discovery because the announcement may be improperly understood and reported. This all-purpose response would also allow one to deny that there is a missing Malaysian Airlines Boeing 777. Secondly, Answers in Genesis complains that the predictions being confirmed in the discovery are model-dependent. They fail to note that every scientific prediction ever confirmed, from the discovery of Neptune to DNA to the Ambulocetus transitional fossil, is model-dependent. The whole point of deriving predictions in science is to test models, hypotheses, theories. Finally, Answers in Genesis suggests that other mechanisms could mimic the signal, implying that although the startling prediction was derived from Einstein's theory of general relativity in the inflationary model of the Big Bang, it could have come from some other physical mechanism. No alternative mechanism is suggested. The AIG response declares instead that biblical creationists know from scripture that the universe did not begin in a Big Bang. We know from Genesis 1 that God made the earth before he made the stars, but the Big Bang requires that many stars existed for billions of years before the earth did. So once again, we have Ken Ham and Answers in Genesis falling back on scripture as if it's infallible. It uh, boggles my mind. As I've mentioned a few times, the book of Genesis contains two different accounts of creation, which to some degree contradict each other regarding the order in which things were created. Not to mention all the other redundant and contradictory accounts of various events in the Bible. So tell me why any sane, intellectually honest person should choose a flawed, ancient, man-made religious text over actual science when it comes to trying to understand the universe we live in. Um, Ken Ham has a problem with science's belief that stars existed billions of years before the Earth did because it conflicts with his biblical literalism. Well, too bad. The facts are the facts. Uh, well, with that being said, I'll call this episode a wrap. As always, you can like the Facebook page, follow the show on Twitter, visit the YouTube channel, listen on Stitcher, subscribe or review through iTunes, check out the archives or latest episodes at podbean.com. Just search for The Week in Doubt. And if you're feeling generous, you can go to the official Week in Doubt Podbean page. Just go to Podbean and search for The Week in Doubt, or I think my uh, user handle might be palbertelli, and click on the PayPal widget to donate. And um, I think that's everything. All right, so until next week, thank you. Thank you.